0: Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking his kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com. All right, so what I want to do with this passage passage today is I want to start at the end and then circle back to the beginning, okay? So we're going to first start by reading verse 11, and I think it'll be—I think we have a slide for verse 11 that I want to look at. Maybe. Okay. So this is the end. After everything has happened, after he's done the water to wine thing, and he says what Jesus did here, John is saying this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him, which I think is so cool also to see. Disciples believed in him. They're already following him. And now they're believing in him. They are curious first. And now it says that they're believing in them believing in him. Okay, so what this is telling us here though, this last verse is telling us that this is a sign of Jesus. This is a sign and the sign is revealing his glory. So here's the thing about John and the gospel of John is he uses the word sign when he's talking about a miracle. John doesn't just call it a miracle. He calls it, he uses this word sign. And what I find fascinating about this is because while all the other gospels they use the word miracle. John doesn't. But John's gospel, this book that is written that we're reading through right now, that, it was the last gospel to be written. Okay, so I'm imagining that John has been mulling this over, trying to figure out what word really captures what is going on here. He's wanting to use a word so that so we understand Jesus's power and his authority in another way that we don't think of it just as that miracle, that buzzword that we know, it's a sign. So when you think of the word sign, what is a sign used for? It's used to point towards something else. When you walk into this building, you have signs telling you kids are this way, you know, gatherings this way. If you're out in public and you're looking for a bathroom, you're looking for the signs telling you where to go. If you're driving down the highway, you're looking for the sign of the exit that you need to take to get where you need to go, right? So by describing this miracle, this very incredible miracle, as a sign, and John keeps this thread of sign, this language, throughout his book, John is saying this thing that Jesus did, it's pointing to something else. The point isn't the wine. It's not this impressive party trick, but it's what the wine pointed to. That is what he's trying to get at, what his power and his authority points to in this action that he does. So what is Jesus doing? What is he pointing to in this action that he takes? And it says right here, he's showing us, go back to the last verse, the slide you're at, he's showing us his glory. That's what this sign is pointing to. He's showing us his glory. And the incredible thing is here, his glory is revealed in this moment that this moment brings joy. So his glory is pointing to his joy. I love that. So there's so much in this passage for us to see so much more beyond that simple act of changing the water into wine. And then what else does John say about this sign? Same verse. He says it is the first of the signs, the first one, the first sign, So throughout Jesus's ministry, he does a lot of very impressive things, doesn't he? We see him heal the sick. We see him feed thousands of people. We see him calm storms. We see him raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. He does incredible things. And I would say all of those things are life or death things, right? Like that's what he's doing. He's in those moments of miracles. It's A life or death situation is what is happening. And yet, Jesus's first miraculous sign that we read about, it sounds impressive. It's cool. But it also feels maybe a little bit unnecessary as you read it. Like, why is this the first sign? Like, were you just warming up? You know, like, what were you trying to do here, Jesus? What is really going on? Why is this the first sign? And stuff like this in scripture, this is the kind of stuff that just like sucks me in. And you know what I want, I always want for us is to just have greater and greater curiosity for scripture. And it's stuff like this that I hope kind of gives us that. When you're interacting with scripture, stay curious. Stay curious with it because there's purpose and meaning behind it all. What's happening here is God's new work in Jesus What he's saying is it's going to be centered on celebration and joy. His first sign points to celebration and joy. So the fact that this is his first sign is no accident at all. And it's incredibly impressive. And it's good news to all of us today. So now I want to go back to the beginning of this passage, looking at verses 1 and 2. Let's get a picture of what the setting is that's happening here. So if you'll flip to the next slide so we can read verses one and two together. Okay, so it says on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So maybe it was a family wedding. We're not quite sure exactly why they were invited, but there you are. And so they're all there at this wedding. And scripture tells us the third day. Okay, so same thing. Because I want us to, I want to help everybody enjoy Scripture more and see the layers and the beauty and the intentionality behind it. I want to double click on this for a second. This third day, why I feel like this is such a fun, cool thing in Scripture here. The third day. So, what do we know about the third day of Scripture? What happens on the third day? The resurrection, right? There we go. The resurrection of Jesus happens. New life, fulfillment of Scripture. The resurrection of Jesus brings rescue and freedom and celebration and rejoicing and his complete glory. We know that that happens on the third day. But there's another third day that I want to point out to us too, and it's the third day of creation. It goes all the way back in Genesis 1. So I think we also have this on a slide. If you look at Genesis 1, verses 9 through 13, we're going to read about the third day here. The third day is going to get a double portion of blessing. So it says, on the third day, God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, same day, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to the various kinds. And it was so. Thank you. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. The third day, God says, saw that it was good. He says it twice on the third day. So getting married on the third day, a Jewish custom would have been noted as the third day would have been a particularly lucky day to get married an especially good day because of this creation story That they say the third day was a double portion of blessing so i love once again the intentionality of jesus as if he's saying you have no idea what i've come to do you're trying to make sure that you have a blessed life to stack the cards in your favor my blessing is beyond what you can imagine I love that. I love these little details we get in scripture. The fact that it's on the third day this wedding takes place and Jesus shows up and does his first sign. So that's the setting, but let's talk about the problem. This is also really important, too, that we understand the problem in this situation here. So they're getting married on the third day, a day meant to be known for its blessing, and they have run into a huge problem. And I relate to this problem on a certain level, and I'm sure there are others in here that relate to this problem. I never want to run out of food or drinks if I'm hosting something. I would rather have leftovers for days in the fridge. I would rather just save the drinks for another time. I hate the idea of running out. If we're planning a party or hosting a gathering or something, the conversation tends to always go like this with us. You know, Matt will say, "Okay, so we need to get like four bottles of wine. And I'll say, you know what, just to be safe, let's get eight. You know, so I get this, I get this on the surface. And I think a lot of us in here do too, but this is a way bigger problem than what we know and how we understand this today. This is not just being a poor party planner. Culturally, this would have devastated the family. A wedding was not simply about the couple. It wasn't just focused on that one couple. It was so much more than that a new marriage was about the community and because it impacted the community it was meant to bind that community together to raise up the next generation you know the bigger the the bigger and the stronger the more numerous families in town the better the economy the better for the the, the town to flourish so they relied on each other they and it was a much bigger celebration than just about this couple it was a big deal for the town so It wasn't just an error in judgment that's happening here. This was on the brink of disaster. Tim Keller, in the book that we're kind of using to guide this, he says it like this. He says, this was not a mere breach of etiquette, but a social and psychological catastrophe, particularly in a traditional honor and shame culture. So we're talking about social disgrace. That's that's kind of the problem that's happening here. The family would have to live with the shame and embarrassment of this for a long time to come. The impact of this would have lasted so much longer than just this, this wedding. So it's a very big deal. It's a very big problem. And Mary knows that this is a problem, and so she seeks Jesus' help. What she does is she invites Jesus into a difficult situation here as she declares, they have no more wine. And so think about this, in light of what you now know about their culture and the situation that this wedding is in, about how big big of a problem this actually was, hear her words again.
1: They have no more wine. They have no more wine. Can you begin to sense the anxiety,
0: the worry, the sense that this was supposed to be a celebration, and it has made a very wrong turn.
1: They have no more wine. And she's not offering a solution here. She's going to Jesus. She's stating her need. She's saying they have no more wine.
0: What is your statement of need today? What is it that you are approaching Jesus and saying, there is no more peace?
1: There is no more love. There is no more joy.
0: There is no more hope. There is no more. That is the posture that Mary is taking with Jesus. And what is your posture? What is your statement of need? There is no more.
1: She takes her need to Jesus without a solution. But somehow with expectation. They have no more wine.
0: And the way Jesus replies here can be kind of hard to understand. But we know Jesus. We know the character of Jesus. We know his love and his gentleness and his compassion. So we have to think about this. His response, woman, why do you involve me? Knowing who Jesus is, we can't assume that that reads the way we initially read it, right? We know that. That is incompatible. So what is going on here? Woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. The only other time that Mary appears in the book of John is at the cross, and Jesus addresses her the same way. Dear
1: woman, This
0: word that he's using here, woman, it's used here to, it's a polite way of addressing a female in culture. Although it's not the way a son would have addressed his mother. So what's interesting about this is he is moving Mary, he's moving their relationship to see him no longer as the son that she gave birth to, but as the Lord of her life. So transition this transformation is beginning right here. And this is what is happening. This is the beginning of a story that is actually about transformation. It highlights the new reality that comes when Jesus is present. So verse seven, it says, Mary tells the servants, fill the jars. Mary tells the servants, where are my little kids? No, sorry,
1: verse five. He's, she says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever
0: he tells you. It says that these servants were told to fill the waters, fill the jars with waters, and they filled them to the brim. Okay, so scripture says that that's about 20 to 30 gallons of water each, and each of these six jars to the brim, to the brim. Imagine this, think about this to the brim, meaning there is no room left. It is nearly overflowing. Think about that to the brim. This morning, Kate made herself a bowl of cereal and she filled it to the brim. And she's walking, <laughs> trying to get to the table with it. And it's, there's milk everywhere. Uh, it's filled to the brim, nearly overflowing. That is a lot of work. That is a lot of work that those servants did. It's a lot of water, a lot of jars to fill up. And for the servants, these were ceremonial wash jars for washing. So this might have even felt irreverent to use these jars for anything other than ceremonial washing. These were purification jars. They were vessels that were used for some type of ritual washing. These jars had a holy purpose. And so it would have seemed natural for the servants to have questions about Jesus's instructions. This doesn't make sense. This is weird. Why are we doing this? This is a lot of work. Why should we trust you? Who are you? Think about all of these things that they might be thinking about. But by making the wine in these jars used for ceremonial washing, used to hold this purification water, Jesus is taking their Old Testament religion and he's replacing it with the new wine of the kingdom. Mary doesn't know that. Mary doesn't understand that, but she still says, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. The advice that leads to the transformation. Jesus takes what is full of one thing and somehow turns it into something completely different. That's our story, right there. That is our story. That is our good news. He takes us. Filled with our own flesh and fills us with his spirit. He takes us filled with our own sin and junk and he takes it and he fills us with his righteousness. He takes us filled with our own misplaced identities and the lies we tell ourselves and the shame and the guilt that we carry and he replaces it by calling us his own, by looking at each one of us as beloved children of God. He takes our own mess and he fills it with him.
1: He purifies us too. So
0: what is he telling you? What is he trying to turn over in you? What transformation is he wanting to do within you if you just listen to his voice?
1: Do whatever he tells you. How might Jesus be good
0: news to you? I think about these empty jars, how he had them filled to the brim, and then he transformed them into something so much more than wine. This act, remember this act, what he did? He spared this family from shame. He spared them. He brought a Better celebration with better wine. He brought joy to a joyless situation.
1: So who here has their own echo of emptiness?
0: Who has your own empty jars? That ache of joylessness, that longing for something better, the feeling that there is no more that you have
1: no more. This is why this passage
0: is good news to us. This was Jesus' first sign, and it points to something so much greater. He is saying, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the Lord of the feast.
1: Something more fulfilling and joyful has come.
0: But for that to happen, Jesus had to look toward his own death. In his same reply to Mary, he says, My time has not yet come. His death was inevitable and it was necessary. And he was thinking of that too in this moment of joy. But his coming death and his suffering that had a greater purpose, it's eternal joy for him and for us. And if that's true, then even when we face sadness or disappointment or suffering or sorrow or loneliness or shame, we can remain joyful. We have greater eternal reasons to celebrate. So without actually spelling it out for them, Jesus is saying, Yes, I'm going to suffer. And yes, there's going to be sacrifice, but it's a means to an end, which is joy it means the end of evil and death and suffering and sorrow there is a greater better feast coming this is just a foretaste one day joy will be made complete but the good news is jesus invites us to taste his joy now and i think this this is the thing that i'm just so excited to talk about for a few more minutes so we know That Jesus has come to be our true joy and we know that one day all will be made right and joy will be made complete but does that mean we can experience joy today how do we be a people marked by joy and this is something that I've been dwelling on lately You know, when we celebrated birthdays back in April, when I had my birthday, I shared when we kind of share, you know, some things to pray, pray for what we want for the next year. And I shared with everybody here that I wanted to be a more joyful person. So I think it's very fitting that this is just the way the Lord works. You know, you take a few months off from teaching and the first time you come back to teach, he's like, how about you teach on joy then if that's what you're interested in. So I want to be so I want to be someone, though, that people say, oh, man, you know, Nick, she is she is such a joyful person. Like I want to grow into that. That's that is how I want to age well is I want to be a more and more joyful person. I'm so drawn to this concept. I've been digging all around scripture, just trying to more fully understand, having conversations with people, reading about it in books. I really want to understand it. I want to observe other people. And I think one reason why I'm so drawn to this is because of how rare it seems. We live in a culture that is driven by people afraid or angry, mean, sad, lonely. And even if those aren't the pervasive feelings coming out of people that maybe we're interacting with, we still get really tired. I'm really busy. I'm so worn out. I'm bored. And so when I read this passage, what I see and what is such good news to me is that Jesus cares about our joy. But more than that, he is our source of joy. His first sign was a miracle at a wedding. It wasn't life or death, but it brought joy and it spared shame. This speaks to me because for a long time, I felt trapped in my thinking on joy. I felt afraid that if any good thing happened to me, then that meant something bad would happen to me. I was afraid to pray for good things because I felt that I would also receive something bad out of it. And this started in college for me. And then it really took off when I started having kiddos. You know, I would think like, oh, this pregnancy went really well, so that means labor—something really terrible is going to happen. Labor, or you know, my kids are doing well right now, so that means something really terrible is going to happen to Matt. You know, like I just had this like really warped view on things. I struggled to taste joy because joy felt like the most vulnerable emotion I could experience, and I thought. That I was the only person that viewed life this way, and I remember—I I mean, I can even tell you the—the the, where I was and what time of day, what year or what year it was, where I was, when it happened. I remember reading this book by Brene Brown, and she had a name for this, and she called it foreboding joy. And research shows—it turns out there's a lot of us that struggle with this and experience this tension with feeling and experiencing joy you don't have to raise your hand right now but feel free to let me know later so that i can feel less alone in this the problem is we don't allow ourselves to experience to lean into joy because we're afraid but in protecting ourselves we're actually harming ourselves and we're rejecting a very real connection to the spirit of god The reality is that joy becomes an incredibly vulnerable emotion for us to experience because I and some of us and a lot of people have a warped view that if we experience joy, we're inviting pain. And without Jesus, this would be one of my standout moments in my testimony, without Jesus, I think I would continue to protect myself from joy. But I know Jesus. And I know that he invites us to experience joy. And I know that he is with us when we experience pain and that they're not contingent upon each other. This is life. And there is joy and there is pain. And this is life. But I want to be marked by joy because Jesus is my source of joy. Not because I'm playing some type of game and figuring out the odds of how life should go. I want to be marked by joy because Jesus is my source of joy. I want to be filled with joy because I am filled by the Spirit. I believe strongly that joy is a standout quality in this world and it is a way for us, the people of God, to be able to point to our source of joy. We, it is as a way for us to be a light in this dark world and the more I think on this, the more I think joy can be a Very powerful antidote to our culture of fear and anxiety and anger and weariness. Because we are hungry for a different way of living. And this passage gives us that good news. So I want to get practical for a few minutes and talk about how, what it looks like to actually practice joy. Because I think by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can taste joy today too. We can be people marked by joy. Not just one day. This is not a one day thing. This is good news for us today. Imagine being a person marked by joy. Imagine being a community, a room full of people in here that are joyful people. Isn't that intriguing? So let's talk about this for just a couple of minutes. Joy is more than an emotion, but it's not less than an emotion. So it does feel a little com- complicated for us to understand sometimes. It is also a grace, though. Joy comes from our vertical reality with Jesus, not our horizontal reality of our circumstances, which is how I would try and distinguish between joy and happiness. Happiness is good. Happiness feels contingent upon our circumstances. Joy is contingent upon our vertical reality with Jesus. So to be joyful means that we don't have to look around, but rather we look to our source who gives joy. And I'm not talking about toxic positivity, or, you know, or not a, we'll just look on the bright side kind of attitude. And it's not meant to mask the hard realities that we face. What joy is, is it's an overflow of the condition of our heart. Joy addresses our interior, our soul. It's that inner peace, that inner contentment
1: that is driven by our source. So
0: we can't control our emotions. We know that, right? but we can train our mind. And our feelings follow our thinking. So a few quick thoughts on what it would look like to practice joy. And with that, quick caveat, personality for sure impacts how we trend. For some of us, this is gonna be harder than it is for others. Some of us this is just gonna be an easier practice. Others are gonna struggle a little bit more with that. And that's okay. It's still accessible to all, but I think it's also it's good and wise to know how your personality trends and pay attention to that. Okay, so three things I'm going to give you. This would have been a cool slide to have made, but I don't think in slides like Ben does, so uh, I'm just going to give you my few things. Okay, first thing, understand that joy is actually an incredibly vulnerable emotion. And so ask God to fill you with his joy. Daily ask him for that inner joy that is spirit-led and spirit-filled. It is a fruit of the spirit that he can bear within you. So boldly ask God to give you his spirit of joy. Second thing, practice gratitude. Make that a discipline. Romans twelve two tells us that do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So daily renew your mind by practicing gratitude. And there is actual research that shows, that supports the relationship between joy and gratitude. I've heard it described as an upward, upward spiral, which is a fitting contrast to the downward spirals that we are all so familiar with, right? So when pract- what practicing gratitude looks like, that's gonna look different for each of us. It's gonna vary for some, You're very diligent and intentional and you've got a journal and you write it out every day. For others, maybe you just include a few moments in your prayer time or it's a conversation you have at dinner with your family or friends, whoever you're with. Take space, make space to practice gratitude. Habit stack it with another activity that you already do. If you're going on a walk, make time for that. If you're unloading the dishes, think those thoughts. Find a way to daily practice gratitude and that is going to help us Cultivate joy. And then, third thing, this is so important
1: focus on what is good.
0: Don't fill your mind with the news cycle. Okay, listen, I am all for being informed. If you know me, you know I believe that to be true. I am all for being informed, but do not let your mind be consumed by the news. Do not let your mind be consumed. It will negatively impact you. It will. How can it not? It will negatively impact you. So do what you got to do. Get a daily email digest of your news or give yourself one check-in a day if you need to during the day, but be mindful of how much you're ingesting. And don't start your day on your phone. I say that as something I have to practice and remind myself all the time. Come up with an alternative plan for you. But I think a lot of us, if not most of us, trend to starting our day with a quick check on our phone. Y'all, that is not going to help us practice joy. Very rarely does your phone give you good news first thing in the morning. (laughs) Don't start your day on your phone. Watch the words that come out of your mouth, how you talk about things. Consider the way that Jesus spoke and then mirror him. By nature, humans gravitate towards the negative. The news stations we know are way more successful when they're blasting out negative stories. So fight against that. Focus on what is good. Watch your words that are coming out of your mouth. Let scripture and prayer be your firm foundation. So three things of practicing joy. Focus on what is good. Practice gratitude and ask the Spirit to give you joy. So to wrap up, the context of this sign in John chapter 2, turning water into wine, what it does, it is hinting at the great, joyful wedding feast to come one day in the future. Jesus will return to establish the new heavens and the new earth, and Jesus the bridegroom will be united eternally and in glory with his bride, the church, his people, And the water jars, those water, those jars that were used for purification, they're a sign that God is doing a new thing from within the old ways. He's bringing a purification to the world in a whole new way. And those are reasons for joy. It is because of Jesus, because of his love for us,
1: that we can be joyful.
0: Jesus brings us joy by going to the cross and dying in our place. And so when we participate in communion, it's a foretaste of the feast that's to come. So I want to invite us now to come forward to the tables for communion. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Teaching Podcast from Salt and Light, a community based in Fort Worth, Texas, making disciples of Jesus together by seeking his kingdom in everyday life. Find out more at saltandlightfw.com.